true revelation. That's the title of this message in our series on the foundations that we're going to lay as we remind ourselves of what we believe and teach here at our church. And I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture that you might not have expected to go, just in order to set the stage for this and to see it played out before our eyes. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I really hope you do at this point, (laughs) please open them to John chapter 3. Now in John chapter 3, as we go through this amazing chapter, what we're going to do is actually look at true revelation from a few different angles, uh, from a few different perspectives. And in your bulletin, I've got those listed out for you so you can read them. It's going to be the revelation of God, and specifically how we understand it will be the first part of this message. And then we're going to talk about how it is that we can receive it, and then finally, how we can confess it. The third point isn't in your bulletin because I just decided on it last night. How we understand it, how we receive it, and how we confess it. In terms of understanding it, we're going to see four elements here in this chapter that Christ is the King, that the Spirit is at work in the hearts of believers, that the Word is a testimony of His truth, and that joy should be our response. Understanding it from the perspective of the King, the Spirit, the Word, and the joy. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this chapter. This is God's Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God." 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride, who has the bride, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. The Apostle John wrote those words that I just read to you. They were written deliberately and intentionally, and as part of something that he understood to be the Holy Spirit moving in order to provide the church with God's Word in written form. And he very strategically determines what goes into his gospel and at what point in that gospel for a certain purpose. And so this account is there for a reason, and it is given to you in this way for a reason. The specific words are quoted for a reason. And what I'd like to show you this morning is that all of it is fitting together to draw the connection between the Word of God prophesied, the Word of God incarnate, and the Word of God written. It's very strategic that Nicodemus is chosen because Nicodemus is a rich, well-educated, well-respected Jewish leader who understood the Old Covenant. Nobody was better situated to understand what Jesus was teaching than someone like Nicodemus. And so this late-night secret back-alley encounter between Nicodemus, who was part of the ruling authorities 
And Jesus, who was this uneducated, itinerant teacher, is meant to help us understand something about the glory of the incarnate Word and the written Word. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus responds to questions about who He is by identifying the kingdom. The people were expecting a kingdom. They were expecting a king. And Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies of the old covenant that the king would come, that somebody in the line of David would arrive. And so the very encounter between Nicodemus, who was looking for that king, and Jesus is to expose the fact that Nicodemus himself, though he seemed eminently qualified, would not be allowed into that kingdom unless he had been born again. Now, Nicodemus understood what Jesus meant. He took that metaphor for what it was. It was to startle him, to arrest his thinking, to say to him, all of your learning and all of your wealth and power and experience and all of your background ethnically isn't going to do anything for you or position you better. Instead, you've got to go back to being a spiritual newborn. You have to be regenerated. You have to go from darkness to light, from death to life. And so, not only was the kingdom and the king exposed to this discussion, but also the Spirit. You see, no one is born again except by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God was at work in the Old Covenant. The Spirit of God would rush upon people and give them supernatural power. Uh, The Word of God as manifest through the prophets, was compelled and moved along by the Spirit of God. The the Spirit of God would fall even on some of the prophets and cause them to do extraordinary things, miraculous things. We saw last week the Spirit of God fell upon the elders that were there to help Moses, and they spoke in tongues to signify that they too had the Spirit, not just Moses. It was the Spirit of God who moved in the Old Testament writers and even in those who were doing the baptism of John. It was by the Spirit that John was able to identify that Jesus was the Messiah. It was the Spirit that came and descended upon Jesus. It was the Spirit that Jesus was going to baptize in instead of John's water. And it was the Spirit that was going to come upon the disciples at the time of Pentecost. When it comes down and and reveals that He has now rested on them, it was the Spirit that came down upon the Gentiles to prove that they too were in the kingdom if they believed the gospel. And it was the Spirit that is always at work in hearts that are transformed. And so what Jesus does is He appeals not just to the Old Covenant, but He appeals to natural law. He appeals to what Nicodemus and anyone else could see. He says, the Spirit that gives new life is like the wind. It blows, and you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it goes. Even a blind person can feel the wind. It's there. It's evidence. And so he says the Spirit is like that. You, you don't know. You can't see it. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know where it goes. But it's that Spirit that moves and gives new life. It takes a person from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. In fact, that work of regeneration is necessary in order for you to demonstrate the faith, in order for you to repent, in order for you to do anything, because the gospel is not received by what you do. The gospel is received by what the Spirit does in you to enable you then to respond to what's offered as free grace in Christ. So it's critically important here that he explains to him that the Spirit is at work. 
In fact, it's interesting that when the Spirit comes down upon the Lord and it reveals Himself in the Mount of Transfiguration, that the disciples who are there are told to listen to Him. There is an appeal to both that general and now special revelation. Well, furthermore, there's also the word that is described here, and that's what you see in verses 9 through 21. John, in his gospel, is revealing that in this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, that there needs to be some explanation for the testimony or for the witness. Those are other words for the revelation of truth. If Nicodemus is going to truly understand what's going on in this time between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, if he's going to understand where we are in the arc of redemptive history, if he, the guy who should know the Old Covenant better than anybody else in town, needs to be instructed on what's going on and why Jesus is really here, then he has to understand the testimony. And ironically, Jesus says, we've come giving our testimony and you don't believe it. We're testifying about what God has done. He says, I'm the one who came from heaven and I'm now on earth. I'm the one who was sent. I am the one who is the embodiment of everything that was promised in the old covenant. I am the fulfillment. I am the reality, not the shadow. His testimony is there. Something else which is there, this is a word that you might not be familiar with, it's typology. He goes back into the old covenant and he anchors this teaching to something that Nicodemus would have understood. Go back and take a look at verse 13. We'll just kind of drop into it here. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a term that was used to describe Jesus in his humanity. Son of Man, his humanity. Son of God, his divinity. Now he's appealing again to what is revealed to us in nature, that there is a God and there are man, and so what you have is Jesus, a son of man, but also the son of God. And now he goes even further, and he goes into what we call special revelation, the revealed word of God, and he takes Nicodemus, he goes back into a section that he would have known very, very well, and he says, remember that time when the children of Israel were rebelling against God, and so God sent snakes into the camp? Now, I know some of you don't like snakes. Just the mention of snakes, some of you are right now, you're you're just sort of quivering. So imagine they go slithering into your tent at night. They go slithering in, slithering up your pant leg, slithering in. You get where I'm going with this? Be uncomfortable. These snakes were real snakes, and they bit the people, and the people were dying. And the illustration that Nicodemus gives, or that Jesus gives to Nicodemus, comes from this story, where Moses says to the people, if you want to be healed, God's word is this, you go out and you look at this bronze serpent. He literally built a bronze serpent and he put it up in the camp and the people were to look on it and be saved. Now he doesn't say crawl over to it and touch it. He doesn't say that you have to do anything in particular to receive it. He says look on it. 
For all you know, people had to be dragged out of their tent near death and put down where they could see it. And the idea is just look upon it and believe and you will be healed. Look on it. Show enough faith to just look on it. It's not in how strong your belief is, how strong your faith is, how good your works are. Your confidence is that this is what I was told to do. My confidence is in that bronze snake. I know in my mind, bronze snakes don't cure poison. Like, I've rationalized that. I I, I know that much. I'm not a doctor, but I know that doesn't work. But I've been told to do it. And in faith, it's done. And I know we've used this illustration before, and it's been stolen from somebody else. But the bottom line is this. There wasn't some varying degree of healing based on varying degree of faith. Have you ever been in a place like that where people say your faith isn't strong enough, or if you had more faith, something would go well for you? Nowhere in Scripture is that taught. There there is no gradation of faith. The faith doesn't come from you. The faith comes from what is the object of the faith. That's where the power is. And you might have crawled out of that tent saying, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Look at a bronze snake. Like, that's going to work. And you look at it, and guess what? You're healed. Just as much as the person who says, I believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that that snake's going to heal me. There is no difference. The power is in the salvation that comes. Now, fast forward a few hundred years to what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus, and he says, that was a type of Christ. That pointed to me. That was a shadow. I'm the fulfillment of that. Just like so many other things that happened to the Jews in the wilderness, Jesus says later, that was me. That pointed to me. And he says, put your faith there. It's my testimony. And that testimony is going to lead to transformation. And Nicodemus should have known that. He was going to be a new creature. There's this wonderful connection that Jesus makes in his own testimony as he ridicules the very people that were part of Nicodemus' club. If you want to look over to Luke chapter 11, I'll give you an example of this. Luke chapter 11, Jesus is in the middle of giving a very strong rebuke to those who were in positions of religious authority. You might know that his strongest words were reserved for those people. Anybody who came to him in brokenness, anybody who came to him as a sinner, anyone who came to him at the end of their rope, anyone who just begged for mercy, anybody who was broken was received with love and grace. They, they were not crushed under any burden of law. They were received by him and Anything that was put upon them, Jesus says, is a yoke that is light, that is a pleasure to carry. But to the religious leaders, he was very strict. And he says here in verse 49, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, that's another way of talking about the revelation of God, the Word of God. It's called the wisdom of God. The uh, Jews broke the old covenant down into three parts. There was the law, the wisdom, or the writings, and the prophets. So he says here, in the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. He's accusing these religious leaders of doing that, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. (laughs) He says to these religious leaders, you took away the key of knowledge when you took away the word. 
You took away the key of knowledge from people and you took away the truth. That hasn't changed. In fact, even today when religious leaders take away the truth of God's Word and replace it with their own ideas or their own charisma or their own agenda or their own brand or whatever it is they're trying to bring you, they too steal that knowledge away from the people. They convert you to something, but it's not real saving faith. They're like some of these people who would go around and convert people to Judaism, and Jesus himself says of them, you make such a person twice a son of hell as they were before. But I want you to notice what he says here, that you killed these prophets, and Jesus, by saying this, is making a very fascinating connection. You see, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, covenant, by the way, is just another word, testament is another word for covenant, the version that the people would have had in Jesus' day would have ended with the book of Chronicles. There wasn't a first and second Chronicles back then, it was just Chronicles. And it would have ended with Chronicles. Now, in your Bible, Chronicles is more towards the beginning, but to them, this is what ended the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And Chronicles is the only book in the Old Covenant that begins with a genealogy, a genealogy that traces the house of David, King David. And what's so interesting is that Jesus says that you have fulfilled the prophecy of killing these prophets. The last one will be John the Baptist. And this goes all the way from Abel in Genesis to Zechariah, whose murder is listed in our Second Chronicles. He says, you have successfully fulfilled the prophecy that you would be killing the prophets and the teachers, and you have now filled up all of that sin as demonstrated in the fact that from Genesis through Chronicles, from the beginning to the end of the Old Covenant, you have rejected it, you have rejected the prophets, rejected the wisdom, and you've stolen the keys of salvation from the people of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, I am here to bridge that gap. I am here to be the king. I am here to be filled with the Spirit. I am here to be the Word and bring the Word. It is not coincidence that the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, begins where Chronicles leads off, and it's the other book that begins with the genealogy of the house of David, this time bringing it all the way to Christ. You see, the writers of the New Testament understood that they were carrying on in written form the story of the incarnate Word of God. He is the ultimate son of David. He is the ultimate king. He is the greater prophet, the greater king, and he is even the greater Moses. Deuteronomy 18.18 says that there will come a day when another prophet will rise up and he will be the greatest one. He will be the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. And Jesus never once denies the fact that he is that prophet. He never once tells somebody who bows down at at his feet not to worship him. He never once denies the fact that he is the king of the Jews. The only problem in Jesus' ministry is that he wasn't a king in the way that the people wanted him to be. He was a bit of a disappointment in his, what I like to call, non-triumphal entry when they were waiting for him to show up on a white horse swinging a sword to overthrow Rome. He plods into town on a donkey. And then he shows up at the Temple Mountain and instead of doing what they were hoping that he would do, which is to establish his kingdom right there so that everyone could see it, it says he looks around and because it was late, he went home. It was the most anticlimactic overtaking of any government that's ever existed. Why? Because he says to them, you thought you knew how I would come, but, but you were wrong. I, I came 
in this particular incarnation, in this arrival, in this time, in this coming, as one who is humble and meek and lowly. One who later on in John says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. Once again, there's no point memorizing John 3.16 without the context of the rest of John 3. This is all part of one big story that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus to put all the pieces together. So he is the word, but also look at this one, the joy. I love how the narrative turns and it begins to talk about the baptism issue. Last week we talked a lot about this, and and John the Baptist was doing his baptism, and when Jesus arrived, remember, John says, well, you ought to baptize me. He does not mean, well, you ought to dip me in this water. No, the, the water dipping is over. He says, you ought to baptize me in the baptism of the Spirit. That's the baptism you're bringing. I need one of those. And after Jesus was baptized, it says that he and his disciples were also baptizing, except the text tells us elsewhere that he wasn't himself baptizing. Jesus wasn't baptizing. His disciples were baptizing. And because, you know, ministry, even in the old days, is apparently competitive, the followers of John the Baptist were spying on the followers of Jesus, and they went back to tell him, hey, guess what? Those guys are baptizing more people than you're baptizing. You're losing your following. They're unfollowing you, and they're starting to follow him. And John the Baptist says, what do I care I'm just here to point to Christ. I don't care. I'm not trying to build a kingdom for myself. I'm not here to build a a fan base. I'm not here to have a following. My whole job was to point to Jesus. And now he's here. So it's my joy that he can increase and I can decrease. How many times do you hear that today? How many contemporary pastors, preachers say, you know what? I'm content to decrease. I just want Christ to increase. I just want to be faithful, like teach the people that God has given me, shepherd the flock of God among me, like in person where I can see them and know them and they can know me. Like, I don't know, functioning like mm, a church. You see, this is all that John cared about. He says, I don't, I'm not into this whole thing about building a name for myself. Christ is here. And he is now the one who is going to bring us something that could not be delivered by me. I could only tell you what was coming. So at this point, his joy is full. He says, the bridegroom is here. He understood he wasn't the bridegroom. He's at the wedding. He's the one who's looking for the bridegroom. And now the celebration can begin. The party can start. There's the bridegroom. There's the bride. We get to be a witness to this glorious marriage that was prophesied before the foundation of the world. So the entire context of John 3 is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ himself, the Word made flesh, as John says at the beginning of his gospel, was ushering in the clear testimony that after he left, there would be the word written. John is an indication that there would be a promise that the word would be written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of the epistles, all the way to the book of the apocalypse, Revelation. In fact, you'll notice that Revelation has a warning built into it that you are not allowed to add or take away from that book. That's how we understand the written revelation of God, but let's talk about how we receive it. I want you to see that you're going to receive it as a kingdom, as a covenant, and from the messengers. As a kingdom by the covenant and from the messengers. First of all, as a kingdom. In John 
1, 41. If you're still in the Gospel of John, back over to that a little bit. John 1, 41. We read this. There was this great concern over the coming of the kingdom in the first century. And verse 41 summarizes what they were looking for. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. You see, they wouldn't be looking for the Messiah if they didn't understand from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, that the Messiah was coming. Look over at Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. So this was a woman prophetess. She was in the temple area. She was teaching about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, she would have taught everybody, uh, some people concerned about women teaching. Uh, she was not teaching children here. Uh, this wasn't women's Bible study. She was teaching everyone, men and women. And she was declaring the truth from God. The Messiah would come. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple. That would be the temple mount. As a woman, she wouldn't have been allowed in as far as the men or the priests, but on the temple mount. And what she was doing was she was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. This is when Jesus' parents brought him to be circumcised and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She said, this is the Word of God incarnate. This is what the prophet said would come. He is the Messiah. And she proclaimed that without any hesitation. Look over at Acts chapter 1. Now, I know that I don't typically use a lot of cross-references. In fact, I typically suggest that's not a good way to approach understanding God's Word, but this isn't really a typical sermon, and these cross-references, I think, are going to bolster the argument, so forgive me for doing this if it's not what you're used to. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Why would they ask that? They would ask that because they were expecting that. That was the point. They'd read the Old Covenant. They knew, what it was, they knew what was coming. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Do you see the connection again? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, how both in verbal and later written revelation in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. This means among the Israelites, among those of the tribe of Judah, and even among the Gentiles, even to the very ends of the earth. And when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He ascended, as it were, into the very throne room of heaven. 
bringing a, a visible representation of his mediation between us and God where he stands to this day interceding for us. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He says to these men, why are you looking up to heaven? The king is going to return, and he's going to return in the same way he went up. It doesn't mean he's going to come down kind of slow motion from a cloud. It means he's going to come down in the same body he went up in. He went up as a man in a body, a glorified body. He's going to come down as a man in a glorified body. And he's going to do everything he said he was going to do. He's going to establish that kingdom, be looking for it, be anticipating it. You see, this was a very eschatological framework that the people had. They were expecting the end. They were looking for the culmination of history. They knew that Jesus was being revealed in this way, that all the old covenant was about him. Once again, I ask you to turn back to the Gospel of Luke and look at Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. Consider these texts more in depth, maybe on your own later on. But Luke chapter 2, 25 to 27. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means the restoration of Israel, the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The very same Spirit that moves like the wind, that changes hearts even in the Old Covenant. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, why? Because from the very time Jesus was born, he was a son under the law, born under the law, fulfilled every aspect of the law, did it perfectly and completely that it could be imputed to us as part of his act of righteousness. They brought him in to fulfill the law. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation, witness, testimony, scripture to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, we receive it because we receive His kingdom. Secondly, we receive it by the covenant. You see, for us to understand how the Word of God is revealed to us, even in written form, we have to understand that it is the natural progression of how He deals with us in His covenant. If you go back over all of redemptive history and you study it, you'll see that God does these three things back to back. First of all, He grants deliverance. First of all, he will bring people out of captivity. He will rescue them. And then the second thing that he does is he makes a covenant with them. Just like when he took the people of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he made a covenant with them. But then the third thing is that there's revelation involved. And it's written down. And this followed the pattern of even the uh, other kings with their followers. It was like the treaties that were made between kings, even in those days, greater kings, lesser kings. 
Uh, There would be an agreement, there would be a covenant, there would be a written example that would put down all of the details of that contract. It was almost always displayed prominently in the house of worship in both of those places so that the people would go, they would see it all the time. It was read publicly. This was a pattern. And so what you see in Scripture is God is deploying that same pattern. There is a great redemption, there is a covenant made with the people, and then there is a written form of His Word delivered to them. In the New Covenant context, Jesus comes. He says, I am going to bring you salvation through my sacrificial death on your behalf. He says to his disciples, I am instituting a new covenant, which is in my blood. And then immediately after that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles, the messengers are sent with that word to write it down and to give it to the people of God. Just like it would guide the people in the Old Covenant, it guides the people in the New Covenant as well. That's why we say that it is everything for us as pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life in the sense of spiritual life and everything pertaining to godliness in terms of what the Lord expects of us. So it's in the context of this covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 is an example in the Old Testament, Revelation 22, 18, and 19 is an example in the New. In both cases, curses are called upon those who will add or take away from that covenant. It serves as the constitution of God's people. That was the case in the Old Covenant. It was the case in the New Covenant as well. It gets written down. Luke, in his gospel, says, I'm doing this in order to provide an orderly account. Jude says that he is eager to write about our common salvation. John is explicit in terms of why he writes and who tells him to write. We see that in Revelation 1.11. Brothers and sisters, the, the Bible that you're holding is the inspired, inerrant, preserved, translated copy of God's word, testimony, witness, revelation in written form, and it wasn't haphazardly thrown together. It was not something that people extrinsically determined was to be part of the canon, but it came from inside. It came from itself. That was the expectation. The authors wrote it believing they were writing God's words for God's people. I don't need to take you through some long, laborious, academic defense for the inspiration of Scripture. Some of those things are helpful in an academic setting, but I want to give it to you in the context of the church. Why is it so important that every time we gather, this Word is opened and read and preached and believed? It's not because we're fundamentalist Bible thumpers. I mean, some people think we are. And you know what? There are enough of them out there that I see why they might think that. And there is enough yelling and screaming and sweating and spitting that goes on from pulpits around the country where people hold up the Word of God and they shake it and they talk about how this is the most important book and it's usually a King James Bible for some reason. And there are a bunch of weird fundamentalist nutcases out there. And they do seem to have a really fastidious apparent love for God. That's not what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters, church, this is not what we're talking about here. Our faithfulness to this, our conviction that this is true and to be studied and known and preached and believed is because we see it as part of a gracious aspect of redemptive history that has been given to us 
Not in isolation from everything else that goes on in the story of salvation, but as part of it. And so it is always pointing back in the Old Covenant to see how it was speaking about Christ and in the New Covenant to see where He was spoken of in the Old. It is all tied together in one glorious story. And Christ Himself bridging that gap, as it were, between Chronicles and Matthew with a genealogy that's so easy to skip over, but yet that testifies to the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was thought of by the people in those days as nothing more than the product of some illegitimate union, was actually the prophesied Son of God who came from heaven. It is part of that covenantal promise that He has made with us, the eternal covenant that we talked about when we wrapped up the book of Hebrews. So, the first way we receive it is as the kingdom. The second is by the covenant. The third is from the messengers, from the messengers. And I'll just say it this way. It's, it's inspiration, for example. You can turn to some of these verses as I mentioned them. I'll, I'll go quite quickly, but it's inspiration. Second, Peter chapter 1. These are not just proof texts. These are texts that prove the point. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit's work that is in the hearts of those who were writing these, and it was the Holy Spirit that prompted those who wrote it to compile it, who understood that they were writing the words of God. From inspiration, I go to the word identification. The people who wrote it knew it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul is writing to a church that he loves very much, a a good church, a solid church. But he says this in in 2 Thessalonians, just to be clear that it all lands properly. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. What right does Paul have to say to a church that whatever I say in this letter, you make sure that everybody else obeys, and if they don't obey it, you shame that person by being separated from them. That is either the height of satanic pride or it is absolutely justified because he's giving you the Word of God. Now notice, this is a problem even for some believers. He says in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There are even Christians who struggle with obeying what God says in his Word. But his Word is identified even as Scripture by those who wrote it. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18 Paul says, for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. He is putting these two together, one of them from the Old Covenant, one from the Gospel of Matthew. He is saying that the New Covenant writers are on a par with the Old Covenant writers. The New Testament, the New Scriptures are just as much from God as the Old Scriptures, and therefore they are to be proclaimed as such. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 We talked about this when we talk about communion. We do that and we proclaim His return until He comes. We're constantly proclaiming this. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. This will be one of the last cross-references, I promise. 1 
Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. What are you supposed to do as a pastor? What are you supposed to do as a shepherd? You're to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's your job. That's what pastors do. Why would you look for anything else in a pastor? When you're looking for a pastor, look for somebody who can handle and teach God's word. You're not looking for somebody who's a great public speaker. You're not looking for somebody who's nothing but sort of like a Christian social worker. You want somebody who makes it their, their aim, their obsession to understand Scripture and then bring it to you to teach it and to explain it and, and to call you to obey it. Once again, that, that's the nature of our ministry here. If you're not sure about that, if you're visiting with us maybe or you're relatively new to our church, you probably notice this is a pattern. But this is what we do. This is what we believe. It's the only ministry that matters. The only thing that is actually a ministry is a ministry of the Word, a ministry of reconciliation. The word ministry can only be attached to something that comes from God and is granted authority by God to preach the gospel, conduct the ordinances, and exercise church discipline. The only ministries that happen within a church happen within the church. I am sorry if this offends some people, but if you've got a podcast, it's not a ministry. Not by a biblical definition. What you need to understand is that unless it is done under the authority of the church for the benefit of the local church, serving the people of that church, it is not a ministry. The word ministry here, the ministry of the word is to be done by and for the church. There are lots of other good things you can do, but let's keep our terminology straight. So, We've talked about the Word of God then in terms of understanding it, receiving it. Let me give you one more and we'll wrap up with this, and that is confessing it. From the very beginning, the church fathers and all of the Christians since the time of Christ have understood that they must assemble and copy and distribute these new covenant scriptures, the writings. It's because they understood that to be the case. Now, at our church here, we have a statement of faith, and that begins with a section on the Bible, and this is what it says. We believe in the verbal plenary, that means complete, so every word and in its totality, inspiration of the Bible. It is the very word of God, inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts. It is complete and sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and the final authority for all matters of faith, practice, and life. Now, that's a pretty good summary, but it's really not complete. And one of the things that we do here at this church and that our leadership is committed to is reminding you that we are not in isolation from all other Christians. Uh, this church was founded in 1947, but it wasn't like it was founded out of nowhere. We are not independent, isolated, and separate from the historic Christian creeds and confessions. While we have not yet adopted a confession to be formally associated with our local assembly, we are a confessional church. We believe in what the church has believed for hundreds of years. And one of the greatest confessions, and the one that I think best reflects what we believe here, especially as those who would be in a Baptistic tradition, is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. And I'm just going to give you three 
sections from this, and it, I think will help us understand in a little bit more detail what the church has confessed for hundreds of years. There are numerous sections in the part on the Holy Scriptures, but I'm just going to read section 4, 6, and 10. Listen to this. It says this, quote, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God its author, who is truth itself. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. It doesn't matter what any man says, what any leader says. It doesn't matter what any pope says. It doesn't matter what any church says, what any denomination says. What matters is what God says in His Word. That's the final authority. That's the authority to which all other authority submits. Section 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, to which nothing has been added at any time, either by new revelation or of the Spirit or by the traditions of men. We don't adopt traditions and hold them on a par with Scripture. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And then they say this, which is very important. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God in church government which are common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. I know what you're thinking. Oh, great, I got that. <laughs> Just finished writing it down. This is an appeal to the fact that the Scriptures are sufficient, but the Scriptures are not comprehensive. The Scriptures don't tell you absolutely everything you need to know. The Scriptures are a helpful guide, but you can't go to them for every question you have about parenting. There is no Scripture that can tell you that you have to have your kid on a schedule or use a certain kind of formula. There's nothing in the Scriptures that say you have to do certain things a certain way. There's lots of room for what it says here according to to natural law and prudence. But the things that are most important that relate to life and godliness and honoring Him are contained in the Scripture. So we believe in sola scriptura, as we sung earlier today, but not solo scriptura. We are not those who say, well, it's just me and my Bible alone, and and we're just going to start over again, and we're going to figure this out once every generation. You stand on the shoulders of people who have been doing this for years and years and years and generation after generation, and you are in a line of those who have gone before you. And I'll give you one more example, and then we'll close. This is the last section, and this really speaks to interpretation. The ultimate authority of Scripture is Scripture. The ultimate interpretation in Scripture is Scripture. We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school class. The Bible will not contradict itself. And so, the last section reads like this. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and by which must be examined all decrees and counsels, opinions of ancient writers and doctrines of men and private spirits can be no other than Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. And in the sentence of Scripture, we are to rest 
For it is in Scripture, delivered by the Spirit, that our faith is finally resolved. This is where your faith is finally grounded and settled. Not in the private visions of others, not in the ecclesiastical authority that is given to some types of churches, not in famous preachers and pastors, but in the Word itself, and the Word interpreted, Spirit indwelt, and your mind and your heart settled. That is what is going to convince you of the inspiration and the infallibility and the authority of Holy Scripture. And that is what is going to, Lord willing, be the basis and also the practice of this church until the Lord returns for His bride. Let's pray. Our Father, we have covered a lot of material today, and I know for many in this room it might be just simply overwhelming. And so I confess a certain fear of man in that regard, and I wish that this would not be received as something that is too difficult to understand, but rather something that will provide a paradigm shift in anyone's thinking here who may be inclined to believe the Word of God is something other than your revealed truth, absolutely consistent in both testaments, both covenants, and revealed both in writing and in the incarnate Son who will return one day for His bride. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to become worshipers of the Bible, that we would not be so narrow-minded in our thinking as to separate it from the grand scheme of redemptive history, but rather to receive it as a gift from you in order to tell us everything we need to know about all that really matters in this life, and that is how to be made right with God and how to please Him as one of His children. Oh, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you do that for each and every one of us this day. And for those who are here who have never really understood this and maybe have never put their faith in Christ, I pray they would look to Him the way that those who were dying of snake bites in the wilderness looked to that bronze serpent, not putting any confidence in the power of their faith or the depth of their belief or the extent of their knowledge or the passion of their willingness, but simply on believing it because you said it and because all the power comes from the object of the faith, not the faith itself. Do this for your own glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.